All right. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Scott. If I haven't met you yet, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's great to have all of you here. In just a moment, I'm going to do some reading from Isaiah chapter 53, and I would love for you to open up a Bible and read those verses with me. Some of the most stirring verses in all of the Bible, truly. And so uh, I just want to encourage you to get ready for that and find that in your, in your scriptures. It's been an exciting week around here as we've had Vacation Bible School and some terrific stuff was going on with uh, your children. Uh, and we just look forward to seeing what continues to develop in them in the weeks and months and years to come. As exciting as it has been around here, obviously it's been disturbing in other parts of our country. And we've all felt the ripple effects of that. And as I have reflected on some of that, as perhaps you have reflected on some of that, it's caused me to wonder what's going on with people, what's going on in the hearts of men and women so that such tragic things happen as in Aurora, Colorado. And in my reflections, I was caused to go back, uh, way back to 1904, 1905. Because uh, what happened in those years, in a prior century, uh, have marked me and moved me for a long time. Uh, in Wales, there was a tremendous outbreak of the presence of God. It resulted in an awakening that uh, has been very, very rare. An awakening is when God shows up in an area, in a region, in such a way that he's manifest. And in his manifestation, where people can kind of see him and feel him and know him and draw near to him, Powerful things begin to happen in their lives so that they begin to be transformed. And that's what happened in this Welsh revival. Uh, As it turns out, congregations all over Wales began to repent, began to turn toward God, began to look to him uh, with soft, pliable hearts that he could shape and that he could transform. And historically, we're told that within six months, 150,000 people were converted to Christ and began to follow Christ with a whole heart. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? It totally changed the nation of Wales. Now, at that time, Wales was in kind of a dark period. And there was a lot of revelry. There was a lot of drunkenness. Uh, guys weren't being responsible at home. Uh, they were blowing all of their money on uh, drink and party. And so their kids didn't have food. Their, their families didn't have clothing. They weren't having the, the kinds of homes that they needed to have because guys were just uh, screwing it up and, and were blowing it big time. But as a result of this awakening and God becoming so real to so many, these guys began to have a change of heart. And the next thing you know, they're not only following Christ, but they're loving their wives, they're loving their children, they're bringing their paycheck home, they're putting food on the table, they're putting clothes on their back, they're becoming responsible citizens. And the story goes on to tell that in the wake of that, many, many bars and pubs closed for lack of business. The churches began to be filled with worshipers and people whose heart were being turned toward God. And as a result of that, crime went so low, the jailhouses were emptied, the court dockets uh, were not trying any cases, the police had so much time on their hands, they were actually forming choirs to sing in the churches where so many exciting things were going on. And on top of that, one of the leading industries in Wales in that day was the coal mining industry. 
And in those days, the way the coal mining industry worked was you had a bunch of ponies who would pull these coal carts down into the mines. They would get loaded up with coal, and then they would pull them out. Well, that business shut down for a while because there had been such profanity and such vulgarity in the ways that these miners had treated these ponies. There had been such cruelty that when their lives changed, so did their language and so did their behavior, and the ponies didn't know how to react. (laughs) If you weren't cussing at them, kicking at them, whipping at them, they didn't know to move. And so they had to be totally retrained uh, because of the transformation that happened in the lives of those men. I could go on and on and on talking to you about the Welsh Revival, but the short of all that is this. I have been giving my life for the last 23 years in this place, Redmond and the greater Redmond area, the east side of Seattle, to see that same kind of thing happen. I mean, just think, what if large numbers of people began to know God in a real and personal kind of way, began to be touched at a deep place, began to have life transformed so that peace reigns and rules in you, And you begin to take on the characteristics of Christ like patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and generosity and long-suffering. And you can live a life of sacrifice so that others benefit. Can you imagine a community and a region like that? Many in this church have been praying for a long time for that. Many of us have been partnering with other pastors and other churches of various denominational stripes about the very same kind of thing. What if, what if, what if God moved in our area in that kind of way? You say, is there any precedence for that? Yeah, not only in Wales, but that's already happened twice in a large-scale way in the United States. And it's also happened dozens of times in smaller regions and smaller ways across the United States over the last couple of hundred years. And we believe that it can happen Again, and we believe that it's important that that kind of thing happen again. Because as amazing as God is, as loving, as embracing, as redemptive, as saving as he desires to be with us, kind of like it was in the old day of Wales and kind of like it was in the old day of uh, the Hebrews, we're kind of a rebellious, stiff-necked, willful, do-it-yourself, leave-God-out kind of people. And the Bible's uh, got a whole lot to say about that. In fact, the Bible says that the entire reason that Jesus came was to touch people like us who are so broken and so busted that we might know that kind of transformation and someday spend eternity and forever with Him. That kind of manifestation where He is so big and so real and so near and so powerful with us has everything to do with many of your family members, your friends, your neighbors, your work colleagues being able to draw near to God. Because we not only believe that Jesus came the first time to sacrificially pay a price for our rebellion, But we believe Jesus is coming a second time. The Bible is very clear. The first time he comes as the suffering servant who pays the price for our sin. But the second time he comes as a conquering king who will gather up all those who are repentant and have trusted him and who will condemn those who haven't. 
And you say, is, is there any good reason, is there any good cause to buy into all of that? And I would say, yes, absolutely. And I would say you find a big uh, picture of that already painted. You already find a, a foreshadowing of that having happened in history. God's already been moving in these kinds of ways, and it's talked about a great deal in the Old Testament, which is where I'm going to do some reading in just a moment. And it all has to do around a prophet by the name of Isaiah, who lived 750 years before Jesus. So, God had been at work throughout all of history trying to bring humanity to a point where He can embrace, be in a loving relationship, be in a saving relationship for our fallenness. And by the time you get to Isaiah, things have really gotten in a mess. There had been just a thousand years before Jesus, this united kingdom under David and Solomon. But then that divided because of sin and rebelliousness. There was a north kingdom, there was a south kingdom, and the north kingdom was called Israel. And they sinned against God and rebelled against God, were wayward against God. And God kept warning them through prophets Amos and Hosea and some other guys to say, you need to repent, you need to turn it around, you need to come back to me. And they wouldn't do it. In 722 B.C., God raised up this neighboring country called Assyria, made them very powerful, and used them to conquer and to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel and their capital of Samaria. Scattered the people, and that that country went away to be no more. Now, the southern kingdom, Judah, continued on for another 135 to 150 years because they had been less sinful and God used Isaiah and some other prophets to say, but you've got to turn it back. You've got to come back on my page. You've got to get it right with me. And they wouldn't. And so what we're going to read in a few weeks, if you're in this through the Bible journey with us, where we're reading through the whole Bible across 2012, is what you're going to be reading over the next couple of weeks is how that whole destruction and that devastation took place. And God's going to empower, and He's going to raise up another country called Babylon, and He's going to use them to discipline people. And He's going to destroy Jerusalem, and even the temple in Jerusalem. And He's going to gather up these people, and He's going to take them off into captivity, into Babylon. So let's talk a little bit about how Isaiah unpacked that. I'm just going to say four real quick things about that, and then we're going to get to a close. And the first thing is this. In chapters 42 and following, Isaiah begins to help the people understand nations are coming in, awful crime-filled kinds of things are happening to us. We are being plundered on purpose. Because you see, the people were looking at these awful things that were going on around them. People committing awful crimes, murders, rapes, thefts. Nations conquering nations and doing horrific things to people. They're looking at all this plundering kind of stuff and they're going, where's God? Can't God do something about this? Has God left us? And Isaiah says, no, here's the hard news. God is right here and he is allowing these hard things to happen on purpose. Because you've been so wayward. Now, friend, that not only happened then, that's happened many, many times through history. And I'm of the opinion that some of this is happening right now in our country. I mean, how can you explain a kid going into a movie theater and just blowing people away? 
How can you explain this happening on our school campuses? How can you explain the kidnapping of children and ruining their lives and impregnating them and making them have kids and things like that? How can you explain uh, abuse and torture and murder of the public's most vulnerable? All you can say is that there is some kind of evil that is let loose so that people do evil things. It is an absence of the manifest presence of God. While He's present, all these transforming things happen in our lives. But He's present as we invite Him to be present. As we engage Him in His presence. And when we don't, when we rebel, and when we are self-willed, He says, okay, you'll have the consequences of that. And a plundering kind of thing will take place. And ultimately, that led in Jerusalem and that whole southern kingdom in the calamity, the utter destruction, and the captivity of the people to Babylon. Now, they were still a religious people. They still did all kinds of religious behavior type things and rituals. But in every other way, they were no different from all those other people around them who were pagan, who did not know God, who did not claim to follow God. They were just like them. And so God ultimately allowed all this calamity to befall them. And it was grievous, and it was painful, and it was confusing. But all along the way, God was saying to the Jews but I haven't given up on you I haven't given up on you I'm going to allow some hard stuff to happen to you but I haven't given up on you repent turn to me I will turn to you I will embrace you I will redeem you I will transform you come to me he said I I haven't given up on you because I've already set you free from Egypt I can set you free from Babylon I haven't given up on you because I love you I haven't given up on you because I, can, I plan to continue some promises through the Jewish nation. So just trust me. I will be with you in this time of captivity. And then Isaiah goes on to say, He is going to ultimately redeem a remnant of His people and return them to Jerusalem to start it all over again, to rebuild it. Now, why is He wanting to do that? Because the ultimate promise is that through the southern kingdom and through this Jewish line, he's going to bring the Savior to the world, Jesus. But at this point, he's going to raise up another servant. Now, let me say a word to you about servants, because if you're doing these readings, you're going to come across that in three different ways. First of all, back in chapter 42, God's talking about his people, the Jews, as his servant. He had made a relationship with them so that they would be his servant in this world to tell good news about how God wants to bless everybody. But they did not fulfill their role, and thus they were rebelling and having all this calamity befall them. Now he's got a different servant that you're going to be reading about. And beginning in verse 28 of chapter 44 and across chapter 45, you're going to be reading about a guy named Cyrus. Now this is remarkable. Because what Isaiah is now doing under the inspiration of God is he's telling the people about what's going to happen 150 years later. 
Cyrus doesn't even exist yet. Cyrus is going to be the king and the leader of a country called Persia. And God's going to see to it that at a given time, he's going to give power to Cyrus. The Persians are going to become a mighty nation. He's going to use the Persians to conquer the Babylonians. And he's going to use Cyrus to set the Jews free so that they can return to Jerusalem. He is, and it's all God's work. God wants it to be very clear, and you'll read this over and over again. I'm doing it, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, but I'm going to use Cyrus as my tool and the Persians as my tool. Now, guess what? When Isaiah began to prophesy and tell these futuristic things, the people were kind of angry. One, they didn't like the whole idea. What do you mean we're going to be destroyed? What do you mean we're going to have this calamity come on us? And then what do you mean that God's going to use a pagan Persian as his tool to redeem us? And God said, Woe to anyone who questions how I'm going to go about my redemptive plan. For I can use any means... And I can use any person that I choose. So let it be known, the clay shall not question the potter. I'm the creator. I'll shape this thing the way that I want to shape it. And friends, I just have to fast forward that into our day to day. Because a lot of us may have a little question around God about why is there so much evil in the world? Why do awful things happen? Why do these kind of murderous things take place? Can't you do something about that? And he's like, yes, I can. And I will. And I'll do it in this way. I want people to turn to Christ. I want people to allow me to do a miraculous thing on their hearts. I want to do an inner transformation that permeates all of culture. Repent, turn to me. But I don't like it that way. I just want you to zap the bad guys. I just want you to pull us out of these harmful things. And God says, I'm the potter. You're the clay. It will happen my way. So when we get to chapters 50 and following, then we get into his saying, now, by the way, all this that I just did, all this that I'm going to do with the Babylonian captivity, with the raising of Cyrus, with the delivering of you, returning you to Jerusalem, saving you, redeeming you, transforming. All that I'm doing there is a foreshadowing. It is a snapshot of what I'm going to do way in the future. In the ultimate suffering servant. And he begins to talk about Jesus. This is 750 years before Jesus is born. And as you read some of these passages, you're going to be moved. I'm just moved almost to tears when I read them and know that God is telling us in advance this is how it's all going to transpire. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, he says, quoting uh, as Jesus would refer to himself in all of this, I gave my back to those who strike. And my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This suffering servant will be jeered, mocked, ridiculed, rejected by many. He'll be uh, used and abused. And he knows it. We're told in Isaiah 52.14 that Jesus' appearance was so marred 
beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. In other words, there's nothing particularly winsome and and beautiful and appealing to him just in and of himself. Because he will be a suffering kind of servant on our behalf. And we're told in Isaiah 53, as I mentioned to you a moment ago, some of the most moving, stirring, powerful verses in all the Bible. I hope you have yours open. I want to read ten of these verses. So if you're not reading along, listen very carefully. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up, talking about the Messiah, talking about Jesus. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Do you understand what's going on here? God knows we are a broken, busted people. And God loves us anyway. God pursues us anyway. God pursues us to the extent that He takes on the brokenness of humanity on Himself so that we can be healed and helped and saved. So He becomes a human. He becomes one of us. He's the suffering servant in our midst. And He is brutalized in the ways that we're describing here. Verse 4, Surely He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, if some of that sounds a little familiar to you, that's because it's all over the New Testament. It's all over the commentary of who Jesus is and what Jesus was about. For example, when we get into 1 Peter 2.24... We're told way hundreds and hundreds of years later in the New Testament, he himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And it's by His wounds you have been healed. We're told in Philippians 2.8, describing the whole incarnational uh, event. What happened when God moved out of heaven and moved into this world? And the person of Jesus, being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're told in 1 Peter 2.25, For you, we, were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd, the overseer of our souls. And we're told in Matthew 26.63, that when Jesus had been arrested, when Jesus was brought before Pilate, when Jesus was brought before the high priest, when he was brought before Herod and so on, Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge. And 2 Corinthians 5-1 tells us this, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. And friend, let me just say it one more time, and I'm going to finish. Do you understand how much God loves you? Do you understand that as broken as we are, as busted as we are, He continues to long for us, desire us, pursue us, even to the point of becoming one of us, taking our brokenness upon Himself so that we can take His wholeness upon ourselves? He is our hope, He is our peace. He is our life. He is our Savior. And that bit of reality calls forth a question from us, a decision from us. And our children have been wrestling with this all week. Maybe you've talked with them at home about it a little bit. But the response that we're talking about involves this. Will you admit Yeah, I'm pretty busted. I'm better than this guy. I'm better than that guy. But, you know, really in the heart of hearts, I'm, I'm pretty screwed up. I'm a sinner. I do sinful things. I need a Savior. And so will you admit that and repent, which means to turn your life away from all that and turn it to God? Will you believe Believe that Jesus is God's Son. Believe that Jesus is the means of forgiveness for your brokenness, for your sinfulness. It is the way, just as surely as God chose Cyrus to help save his people in Babylon, he has chosen Jesus to save us, our people today. Will you believe that and receive His forgiveness? And will you confess, I'm a sinner. Jesus is the Savior. He's the forgiver. I'm going to place my faith in Him.
I trust Him. I'll not trust my good works. I'll not trust my best efforts. I'll not trust being a religious person. I'll not trust just attending a church or doing uh, kind deeds. I will trust that Jesus is the only way to forgive my sins and for me to be saved for all time and eternity. He's Savior. He's Lord. Now, I'd love to pray for you. So if you bow and close your eyes for just a moment, let me pray for you. As I'm praying for you, perhaps you want to pray also quietly, silently in your own heart. Can you admit you're a sinner? If so, would you just under your breath, in your heart, say to God, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a Savior. I believe Jesus is the Savior. He's the forgiver of my sin. And I will confess to you, your Lord, your Savior, and I am your servant. Friend, if you're praying that and saying that to God, I want to pray for you. God, you hear these prayers. You see the heart that's whispering that prayer to you. And I pray you'll bless that life. I pray that you'll save that person and forgive them of their sin. I pray that you would make them your son and your daughter. That they might live with you forever. And I pray these saving things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.